Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 15. We've got two sermons left in our Abide series today, and uh, Josh will then close it out next week. Um, nice. <laughs> um, and uh, oh, that threw me off. Um, where was I going? Thanks, Jordan. Uh, anyway, yeah, John 15, um, two weeks left, and uh, Josh will close it out next week. Um, today we're going to be looking at one verse, or two verses, verses 12 and 13, um, and these really tie into um, probably one of my favorite, um, favorite events, favorite stories, favorite things that I've seen happen in the scriptures, um, dealing with Jesus' intentionality towards uh, one of the disciples, and one of the things that, basically all of the disciples, um, but particularly one disciple who his life was completely changed um, for the rest of kind of the course of his trajectory. Um, and so I, I always love that because that's, that's what I'm always praying for for myself. That's what I'm always praying for us as a church is that we would encounter Jesus in such a way that we are just literally, I mean, we, we are... Um, just stop dead in our tracks, and we are changed and transformed by experiencing the intentionality of Him pursuing us, Him moving towards us, Him loving and serving us, um, and and ultimately doing that for the glory of God and for for the joy of us to be able to receive. And so, the previous leaks we uh, we talked about those who love Jesus will also keep His commandments. And this one today is kind of diving back into that idea of, of where that love for Jesus comes from that then leads into us responding in some way or another. It could be with commandments. It could be with loving others. It could be with pursuing and serving others. Um, but it's definitely tied into that idea. And so John 15, picking it up in verse 1, um, just like we've been doing this entire series, uh, reading this together out loud. Um, and again, the, the main reason for that um, isn't just because I want to hear us chant out John 15, um, but more so is because I want you to have the repetition of just reading through it um, so that it grows in your familiarity with the, with the passage um, so that you can always kind of look back where it's not just reading a verse here and a verse there, but we're collectively getting this entire passage. I'm kind of understanding what all is going on in this context so that we can always reference it, look back to it, and even within that, help us to, um, to, to memorize these passages so that we have them at our intellectual fingertips. Um, regardless of what's going on in our life circumstances, we can just draw it to um, the forefront of our minds um, kind of pulling it from, from memory. And so that's one of the reasons why we read Scripture aloud together. So John 15, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 17 and, and follow along with me. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Did we lose it there for a second? I was, one, I was like, man, y'all just y'all left me hanging on that one. But anyways, picking up verse 7, I believe. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. God, thank you again for access to your word. Thank you for having the ability to read it together. Thank you for um, creating the church to be a place in which we, as believers, can gather together. We can come together with the one common denominator that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the good news, that he is the gospel embodied in, in a person that he came, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again. And he did all that in order to bring us into relationship with you. And so, Father, we, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And today, as we continue to unpack these verses, as we look at this idea of loving one another as you have loved us and, and, and how that moves into the idea of being intentional with one another and, and offer our, offering our bodies as living sacrifices for one another. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal that truth to us, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us what it is that Jesus has already done for us, that he's already done for one another, that he's already done ultimately for the glory of God and for the joy of us by offering his life. And so, God, would we be able to see that today? Would we be able to have that stir up our affections? Would we be able to have that change our thoughts, change our emotions, change the way in which we go about living life so that we can begin to see those around us with intentionality, that we can begin to see the needs, practical needs that are around us so that we can serve, that we can enter into their lives with the intention to love them, as you have loved us. So Father, help us with that this morning and help, help us to be transformed and to treasure you and your word. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about this text is usually when people look at a passage of Scripture, they, they kind of think of that chunk of Scripture, whether it's 17 verses, 13 verses, a couple of verses. Like Usually if you look in your Bibles, you'll kind of have like subcategories or titles or headings over different parts within the chapter. And a lot of times what happens is people think that that's kind of moving on from one event to another event, or it's moving on from one setting to another setting. Uh, it's moving on from one place to another place, one interaction with people to another interaction of people, and it just kind of progresses that way. Um, and sometimes that's true in scriptures. Uh, but this, this story, this, this passage is kind of within a larger event that's been going on for a while now as far as scriptures are concerned. This is literally one meal, one event, one story, one setting, one place, one time, one interaction of Jesus with his disciples that have been going on since John 13, 1 and ends in John 17, 26. That in, th those entire five chapters there are all about this one meal, this final supper with Jesus. And so there's a lot that goes on here. And, and one of the things, the reason why I point that out is because when we look at verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And that greater love has no one than this, that, he, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus has already given them the explanation of what he means by love others as I have loved you and greater love is no one than he died for them, than he lay down his life, than he would sacrifice himself for them. Jesus has already promised to them what is going to happen to him and he's already demonstrated for them what it means to love others as I have loved you. And the way in which we're going to look at this is we're going to look at it through the lens, kind of through the personal testimony of John, the author of this book. We, we've been sticking with John a lot throughout this passage. We, uh, the week when we talked about, um, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We, we didn't just look at the commandments that Jesus is talking about at this last meal, but we looked at all the commandments that Jesus is, is referring to in the entire gospel of John. So from John's um, um, vantage point, from his personal testimony, he's looking at all the areas in which Jesus said, believe in me, follow me, trust me, pursue me, rely on me, find rest in me. Like those are commands that John is seeing Jesus constantly keep telling them that aren't tied to do and don't do, but rather tied to just trust me, believe me. And so one of the things that I wanted you to see here, um, and, and this is, again, this is one of my favorite, um, favorite kind of storylines to see traced through scriptures, is because um, John is probably in this last meal, and I'm not saying that it's greater or less towards the other disciples, but for this specific meal, some of the wording that Jesus uses and the intentionality that Jesus shares and the interaction that he has with John in some ways is greater than the other disciples were able to experience at this last meal. And I'm going to show you that as we dive into that. So turn back over to the beginning of this meal, John chapter 13. I want to show you an interaction that happens between Jesus and John as referred to oftentimes as the one whom Jesus loved. 
Um, and, and, and that's not to say that Jesus doesn't love the other disciples. He does love the other disciples. There was just a close-knit relationship between John and Jesus, one in which oftentimes people would refer to John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Maybe sometimes it was kind of them just dagging into John and, well, you're just the one that Jesus, like you're Jesus' favorite, like he's the one that loves you. But I don't know, it could be that, could not be that. But regardless, we know Jesus loves John. And so... Um, I want you to see the interaction that happens between them specifically at a very, very pivotal, pivotal, almost made it, pivotal moment um, between John and Jesus. In uh, John 13, beginning in verse 21, he says this, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So this is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. Um, the 12 apostles are eating with Jesus this most important of meals, the last meal with him. Jesus has just said to John in John 13, 21, truly, or to the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. John's reclining next to Jesus. And then it's almost like Peter kind of gives John this nod. Um, it's almost like if you've got a friend or if you're maybe a, a sibling and like there's those moments in your life where um, where you want something from your parents, but you know your parents kind of favor one of you more than the other. And so you're like, you go ask them if we can go do this because they always say yes to you. Like I can almost see Peter here like motioning to John being like, like ask Jesus, like who is he referring to that's going to betray him? Because if I ask him, he's probably going to call me Satan again. Um, because like that's a reality with kind of Peter and, and Jesus' relationship. Like sometimes Peter nails it, and then sometimes Peter is referred to as Satan. Um, and so anyways, Peter is motioning over to John, hey, ask Jesus who is he referring to. And, and I believe Jesus as John, and, and when it says he's reclining against him, um, doing some of the work and looking into kind of this culture um, of first century Jews, uh, what they would actually do in reclining, like they didn't have just general tables like what we have. And so a lot of times they're, they're laying on the floor and they would use each other as furniture. <laughs> like, I mean, essentially, like that's, that's what they would do. Like there would be times where it's kind of like in circles, they would use one leg as a pillow and another leg as a pillow and kind of, I mean, we used to do this when I played football like and we would sleep in locker rooms and we would just use each other's bodies as as pillows but anyways um 
This is what they were doing, essentially. And so John, I'm just helping you picture it. So anyways, John is, is literally like reclining against Jesus. And as he's reclining against Jesus, Jesus, and I believe, whispers to him that it's going to be the one that he gives the bread to. And the reason why I know John is able to realize and understand that is because, one, he's writing this book. But secondly, when Judas actually gets up and takes the bread and leaves... What, what are the rest of the disciples thinking? Like, they're just confused. They have no idea what's going on. Yet Jesus tells John that the one that's going to betray me is the one that I'm going to give this bread to. And then he gives the bread to Judas, and then Judas gets up, gets up and Jesus literally says, go and do what you're going to do. Satan's entered into you. Satan's already placed it within you. Like, I know exactly what you're about to do, and I'm letting John know that you're about to do this because he's asked me, and so now go and do the dirty deed. So John, leaning back against Jesus, Jesus then answers this to him. And so that could be like a monumental moment for John because Jesus has just shared with him, hey, one of our core guys, one of our core guys that's been with us for three years, that's a friend of each one of ours, that I just washed his feet, that I included within the group for three years is going to be the one that's going to give me over to the authorities, that's going to give me over to ultimately betray me and then have me crucified. I mean, that would be like me just looking around the room here and telling all you guys, hey, like Jeremy is going to betray us and he's going to throw us under the bus. I can, he's not here, so I can use him. So like Jeremy's going to throw us under the bus and he's going to betray us and, and, and it's, going to, it's going to go bad from here. And like this would be us thinking, I mean, because, and I mean, Jeremy does handle our budget and finances too as a church, so it does work pretty well. But anyways, like, like thinking about it, like a lot of you are like, no, 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 no. Like I know Jeremy. Like we've gone over to his house and have had dinner. Like we've we've gone to like we've we've experienced life. We've shared life with them. Like Jeremy would never do this. Like this is this is not what's going to happen. And so I could I could sense that like there's there's got to be some experience here for John. That's like are you like really Judas? Like of all the people that are going to betray you, why would it be Judas? And then the next thing Jesus says is another big statement in verse 31. He says, Then now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. At the very moment when the final betrayal has been set in motion, at the moment when Jesus says, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. So there's the one bombshell dropped of Judas, our dear friend who's been with us for three years, is going to betray me. And then the next thing Jesus literally shares with him is, oh, but not only that, but now is the time that I'm going to be glorified. Now is the time that you're going to see me shine in the greatest act of glory that this world is ever going to see. The miracles that I've done, the bringing people back from the dead, the feeding of 5,000 people with some, some um, fish and some bread, like that's, that was some glory, but now is when I'm ultimately going to be glorified. I mean, John's already seen transfiguration happen, and Jesus is now again saying ultimate glory, God's glory. 
coming down and being manifested for the world to see is about to happen. And so then you kind of have this whole other flip side of like this roller coaster of emotions for John of like turmoil of not our best friend Judas. And then over to, but re, like all of a sudden now you are going to be lifted up. Like everything that, that we believe you deserve, you are now going to receive by God's glory coming down and being manifested in you. Yeah, this is happening. And then the next thing he says in verse 33 while John's mind's churning, just this incredible news, Jesus reaches for a specific word that he uses in reference to the disciples, and he refers to them as little children. He says, little children, verse 33, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That sounds similar, right? Sounds like our verse in 15. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So now he's expressing to them, little children, I'm going where you cannot come. I'm leaving you up till now. Everyone knows that you are my disciples because you've literally been following me around physically. But the thing that's going to now determine whether or not you're disciples is the love that you have for one another when I'm gone. You've been marked by physical following Jesus, kind of living in the dust of the rabbi there. But what you're now going to be marked by is not physically following me, but spiritually trusting me, spiritually following me as you go and do for others as I've done for you. As you go and love others in the exact same way that I have loved you. So I want, I want you to consider a couple of things with me here. The word little children occurs only here in the Gospel of John. There, there are other places where it could have been used. Um, as when Jesus called out to the disciples in John 21, verse 5, he says, Children, do you have any fish? But that's a different word. That's padiah. This one, little children, is technia. Only here does he call his friends little children. Not only is this the only place, but it's the only place in all of the New Testament except for one other book, and that's 1 John. 1 John, written by John 60 years later, is the only other book that contains this word that Jesus used at this Last Supper as a term of affection that he gives to his disciples. It becomes a word that John begins to use for his flock, for the people that he's shepherding, for the people that he's loving, for the people that he's serving. He says in verse John 2, 1, My little children, I write to you so that you may not sin. First John 2, 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. First John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Seven times in five chapters in the book of First John, he uses that phrase, little children. Something else is interesting. Nowhere else in the New Testament does the term new commandment occur outside this meal except in John's first and second book. 
First and Second John. Those are the only other places where that term "new commandment" is used. First John two seven through eight. John says, "Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him, Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already." shining of all new testament writers only john uses those terms little children and new commandment and the reason why i think he uses those terms is because of jesus intentionality with him at that meal had lasting effects on him in such a way that when jesus when 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 john left that meal he began seeing others the way jesus saw the disciples and not only that but he then began living out a new commandment that Jesus offered to him at that Last Supper that he then began incorporating, not in just teaching, but in the way that he lived his life towards others. So how do we love others then the way that Jesus has loved us? How do we we have an experience like John had at the Last Supper when Jesus entered in with intentionality to him. And I think the only way that we can have that experience is by just experiencing Jesus the way that John did. There's no magic recipe. There's no amount of scripture that you can memorize that's just going to flip the switch on for you. There's no amount of prayer that you can offer up that's just going to flip the switch for you. There's no amount of sharing the gospel that's just going to flip the switch for you but simply experiencing Jesus. When he says, love others as I have loved you. So you can't love others until Jesus has loved you. He says that in 1 John 4, 19. As John continues reiterating, we love because he first loved us. That's the only way in which this can happen. So the two things that I want to see, that I want us to see about the way Jesus loves us is Jesus' pattern and Jesus' power in which love comes out. There's a pattern in which we live out his love, just as John has continued to live out the pattern. And we see that in John 13. We actually see it backed up in the way in which Jesus served them. I'm going to kind of paraphrase these. It'll be verses 2 through 5 and 12 through 15, but it says this. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So when Jesus gets to the command, love others as I have loved you, we don't have to begin wondering what does he mean by the as part. What does he mean by love others as I have loved you? How, well, I don't know how he loved me. Like, how did he love me? I just washed your feet. 
I just did a practical deed of helpfulness for you. Why is Jesus washing their feet? Like this isn't some type of just spiritual ceremony in which it symbolizes something for people in that day and age. We have kind of turned it into that. But the reason why they washed people's feet in first century is because all of their roads were dirt. Like they didn't have sidewalks. They didn't have um, um, uh, concrete. They, they didn't have streets like what well, we have streets. Everywhere they walked was them walking through dirt, dust, like just constant griminess. And so anywhere that they were going to get to, by the time they got to there, their ankles, their shoes, like their, their feet, everything was just caked in dirt. And so a practical way to serve somebody was, hey, let me wash your feet. Here, that'd be like, hey, let me wash your car. Let me help out. I see some, uh, some, some green stuff growing in your siding at your house. Let me come over and help power wash it for you. Like, like the more that we're able to in, in, invest in each other's lives, the more we're able to see practical ways in which we can serve one another, just as Jesus practically served the disciples by washing their feet, by seeing a need and then answering it. This is the way in which we live out the pattern of his love by seeing the way in which he lived out the pattern of his love. Now, a couple of things to say to that. Um, because our kind of default is to always love those who are lovable, um, pursue those who we want to pursue, engage with those who are fun to engage with. And what I want to tell you is the first thing and the hard thing, um, it's easier to say, harder to practice, is loving the unlovable. When Jesus washed all the guys' feet, like when he went from one to the next, from Peter to James to John to Bartholomew, and then he comes to Judas, like Jesus, Jesus, when he came to Judas, didn't go, I know what you're about to do. I'm just going to skip you. If you could just back over into the corner, I'm going to go ahead and wash the rest of their feet. Jesus, knowing exactly what Judas was about to do, which was transfer him over for 30 pieces of silver, transfer him over for just a minimal gain in Judas's life. Jesus said, even though you're going to do that, despite that, I'm still going to pursue you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to serve you and I'm going to wash your feet. Guys, that's one of the hardest things is for those who, who aren't even just unlovable. They might not even be people that you just dislike, but might even be people who have harmed you in a certain way. How can we practically find a way to serve and love them? Not to spite them. How can we find a way to love and serve them because Jesus loved and served us despite us? We're all enemies of his. Another thing is laying aside status and becoming a servant. I mean, Jesus said, I, I'm your teacher and master, essentially, right? But yet I am laying aside that status. I'm laying aside the fact that I'm God. You should be washing my feet and I'm going to come and serve you and wash you. Like the worst thing we can do is start creating this type of hierarchy. Well, because I'm a missional group leader or because I'm a, like we, we've got to mobilize everyone else to do all the serving, yet we don't serve ourselves. Like that can't be, that can't ever be. 
And the third thing on this one is just, just looking for those engaging and practical deeds of helpfulness. They're all around us constantly. Just look for them. Charles Spurgeon, 19th century um, pastor and theologian said, Christians, you also are to love one another, not because of the gain which you get from one another, but rather because of the good you can do to one another. That's important. Anything that we do to serve others should never come because we need to check off the box on something on our part. We're doing this so that I can feel good. We're doing this because Dwayne said go and serve others. And so now that I'm going to go and serve others, I'm doing that because he said that we should do that if we want to love like Jesus. And so now I feel like I'm loving like Jesus because I'm doing that. Like the more we think about it internally, we're not serving. We're not loving as Jesus loved us. Jesus sacrificed his life in order to love us. So how are we making sacrifices that might not be timely, that might cost resources, that might cause sweat and energy? How can we practically love others? Your neighbors got weeds, go help pull their weeds out. Just find ways to love and serve each other. The second thing within this, this idea of Jesus loving us and us loving others as he loved us is living out the power of his love. The commandment is new because it is a command to live in the love of Jesus, not just a list of rules on how to love like Jesus. The difference with this new commandment versus all the other commandments, the reason why John and Jesus refer to it as a new commandment that I'm giving you is because this commandment comes with a source. This commandment comes with fuel. This commandment comes with power that enables us to actually live out the commandment. Like you realize the Old Testament commandments, like the Old Testament law, and we talk about this every week almost, like the 613 ordinances in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, all the judges and prophets, all the ones who come in and say, don't do this, do this. Moving into the New Testament, even John the Baptist coming in and, and, and kind of being a New Testament prophet in, in a lot of ways and offering a, a new way to live and repent of your sins and look to Jesus. Those are commands. Jesus coming in with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is taking all those Old Testament commands and flipping them upside down and basically saying, let's put them on steroids. Everything was external. Now let's make it internal. Okay, now just do all of those. How in the world am I going to do all of those when I'm a sinner? And I've got no ability to accomplish it. Because as soon as I do two, then I miss one. Because the, like, the reality is if you try to track all sins, there's categories. There's sins of omission and there's sins of commission. There's things that you should not do and there's things that you should do. So let's just say you master all the things that you should not do. Well, you still have a whole list of things that you should be doing. And if you're not doing them, guess what? You're still sinning. Even though I'm not being a drunkard and even though I'm not envying others and the, even though I'm not blah, blah, blah. But I'm not loving others and I'm not serving others. I'm not doing this. Well, guess what? I'm still sinning. I'm still like. Trying to manage our sin behavior is impossible in our own strength. And that's really what Jesus was getting at with the Sermon on the Mount. 
let me just keep pushing this deeper and deeper and deeper so that you can finally get to a place where you say, uh, Jesus, this is impossible, man. Nobody can do that. Finally. Finally. Because that's why I'm here. I'm doing that for you. Jesus never sinned in omission. He never sinned in commission. Jesus always did what was right. And he never did what was wrong. And because of that, like that's one of the pieces of of the gospel that we leave out a lot of times when we're sharing the gospel with others is we always say Jesus lived a perfect life. But a lot of times no one really understands what does that mean? Like why do we care that Jesus lived a perfect life? Because we always jump to the reason why he died a death was because you couldn't live a perfect life. And because you couldn't live a perfect life, he had to take all that punishment that you deserve and he placed it on himself on the cross. And from there, he then had to raise from the grave so that he could then raise you from death as well and guarantee you life eternal. That's gospel. That's beautiful. But what about the perfect life Jesus lived? Why did he have to live a a perfect life? Why couldn't he just come down and go straight to the cross? The reason why he had to live a perfect life was because not only does he take our unrighteousness from us and place it on himself on the cross, but he had to earn righteousness by living perfectly, by doing everything right and not doing anything wrong. He had to do that so that at the cross, when he takes our unrighteousness, he then deposits within us his righteousness, which gives us the fuel to be able to do right and not do what's wrong. That's the only way we can do it. That's the only way I can love others as Jesus has loved me by having him give me the ability to say no to sin and yes to him. And the reason why I'm able to now do that is because Jesus did it first. Jesus said no to sin as as Josh shared in the confession. He said Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. Jesus was tempted in every single way that you are and said no. He said no and the way that he was able to say no is because he was perfectly abiding in the Father. The Father's giving him the, the access and ability to say no to that. Jesus, in perfect obedience to the Father, is living the perfect life. And therefore, because he's giving that to us, we're now able to live, not only live out the pattern of his love, but live in the power of his love. We're able to love others the way Jesus loved us because Jesus is in us. He's given us his identity. He's given, of, he's given us his righteousness. He's given us his obedience that he had to the Father. He's given to us. And the whole reason why we're in John chapter 15 is because the way in which we tap into Jesus' righteousness, the way that we tap into Jesus' obedience is by abiding in him is by daily, hourly, minute by minute, second by second, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I'm exposed to to this temptation right now. Jesus, I know that you conquered this temptation. You've given me the ability to now conquer this temptation. Jesus, I'm trusting you. Help me conquer this right now in this moment. 
Jesus, I know that as I'm abiding in you, you're abiding in the Father. So not only do I have your power, but I have the Father's power. Not only do I have the Father's power, but what we talked about last week, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to also grant us power to be able to live in, to overcome whatever it is that we're overcoming. He grants us the ability and the way that we get access to that is by abiding in him hourly, minute by minute, second by second. Guys, like the Christian life is just a lifetime of ordinary moments of trusting in Jesus. Like we're not looking for these huge mountaintop. We're not like John's entire life was not a moment like the Last Supper. He obviously looks back to it because 60 years later when he's talking with his own flock and he's writing to them, he's referring to them as little children. He's giving them the same new commandment that he's remembering 60 years ago that affected his life in such a way that it's changed and transformed his, his, his affections, his thoughts, his actions, his pursuit of others. I refer to you as little children because that's the way Jesus referred to me. I want to love you in practical deeds of helpfulness because that's the way Jesus loved me. And the way in which John is doing that is because John is seeing, as he wrote in John 15, Jesus told us to abide in him. And what does it mean to abide? It means just knowing that we have access to him. That we're connected at all times. That as he's the vine, we are the branches. We are connected to the vine because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We are connected to that way. We are connected to that truth. We are connected to that life. Nutrients are flowing through Jesus, connecting to us. Those nutrients are working within the now new identity that we have, the righteousness that we have. And as I shared several months ago, the idea of the glove is Galatians 2.20. Because we're abiding in Jesus, we are now able to say, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So my daily living is by faith in Jesus and by trusting that Jesus is living through me, not me living. It's not me trying to determine what's going to be best for me today. It's not me trying to determine what job I need to take. It's not me trying to determine how many children I should have. It's not me trying to determine those things. It's me trusting Jesus daily that he's going to guide me and that he's going to bring those opportunities that are going to lead to my joy and for his glory. And I'm, I'm, I'm abiding in that. And so how do, how do we know that Jesus gets formed into that? Is, is just like the idea of a glove. Yes, Jesus is deposited into us. But as Galatians 4.19 says, Paul's telling the church there, he's saying, I'm entering into the pains of childbearing until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is entering into your mind and your affections and your heart and your, your thoughts and your memories and your memorizations and, and all the knowledge that you possess. I want to continue impacting all those things. I want to get Jesus into all of those things so that you begin thinking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, serving like Jesus, acting like Jesus, trusting like Jesus, all of those things. Only Jesus can give us the power to live out the power or the pattern of his love. 
So it comes back to abiding. It comes back to abiding. As we are abiding in Christ, we're going to, hopefully, my prayer for each one of us is be changed just like John was. So that as we interact with those who are around us, as John did 60 years later in Ephesus, John begins telling his people and loving his people in the exact same way that Jesus loved him at the Last Supper. Let us constantly go back to Jesus. Just go back to him. If you can't figure it out, go back to Jesus. Lord, I'm struggling right now. Your greatest command is for me just to trust you. It's just to come back to you. I always struggle with trust. I always struggle with doubt. I always struggle with belief. Like Darius and his daughter and, and Jesus wanting to come in and heal his daughter. And Darius said, if you can, can you heal her? And Jesus was like, what do you mean if I can? Darius responds, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like Jesus isn't, Jesus' power working in you is not dependent upon the quality of your faith in him. It's dependent upon the quality of who he is. So there's oftentimes when I come back to Jesus that I'm constantly saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm struggling wanting to come back to you right now. I'm struggling in my heart. I'm struggling in my mind. Lord, I go through times in life where I feel depressed. And I know I shouldn't be because I know who you are and I know what you've done. But Lord, I feel it. Is that me not trusting you? Is that me not abiding in you? We come to him regardless of how we think and how we feel. We come to him because we see, we know he is who he says he is. I'm going to have the band come down front and we'll, we'll close out. God, we love because we understand that you first loved us. God, let that be our anthem today. Let that be our praise and adoration today. Is that because you first loved us? You came to us. You pursued us. As Josh will talk about next week, you chose us. Because of that, we're able to go and love others and choose others and seek others and serve others. But God, before we do that, my prayer is that we would each experience you like John experienced you at the Last Supper. That we would experience you washing our feet that we would experience the intimacy of leaning back against you. That we would experience the intimacy of dialoguing and having a conversation with you. And that we would ultimately experience you going to the cross and offering for us the greatest sacrifice that has ever been offered.
greater love as no one than this than that he would lay down his life for his friends. God, would we experience that, not just for salvation, but would we experience that daily as a reminder for us? This is why we trust you because we see, we've seen what you've done. And God, may your Holy Spirit overwhelm us with that truth and that revelation. Would your Holy Spirit overwhelm us with the way in which he is forming Jesus into our lives? God, would it surprise us when we, we grow in our affections for others and we want to serve those who are unlovable? Would it surprise us when we want to give of resources that are hard to give? Would it surprise us when we begin loving others as you have loved us? So Father, let's finish in worship. Let's finish today in just adoration of your sacrifice and your demonstration of love. And let that change and transform us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at